1: If you want some price action, maybe you need to go to emerging markets and FX this morning. A one-two punch, and both of those lead to the same source. U.S. sanctions, Russia threatening to retaliate for a new round of sanctions announced by the United States, and Erdogan's delegation to the United States failing to secure any concessions from the administration in Washington. Join me to discuss this, Shahab Jalanous, Credit Suisse Global Head of FX Strategy. Good morning to you, Shahab. Morning. EMFX. Walk me through whether this is idiosyncratic or whether there's a much bigger story taking place here.
2: I think the uh, underlying story uh, is and has been the rise in global yields, uh, which obviously puts pressure on all emerging markets. Um, but on top of that, you have clearly the trade story, the tariff story as well, uh, which is a, is a severe risk to export oriented economies. And what, that, what happens then is if you then throw in specific themes like sanctions as well, um, you've really got a, a very weak patient that's not necessarily uh, ready you know, for yet another yeah. sickness. Uh, and I think that's, for countries like Turkey, uh, that's definitely what the problem we have is right now.
1: Dollar Turkey moving by another two percentage points again today. I mean, we're seeing big moves in Turkish markets, and I think what a lot of people perhaps listening to this program are trying to figure out is how this bleeds, the contagion, the ripple effect, the channels for that. How do you see this playing out at the moment? At the moment, it might be contained to Turkish assets. How do you see it bleeding into the financial system and potentially beyond, Shahab?
2: So I think the uh, the sanctions story, uh, the way that bleeds is that the market looks at any other country that could have a sanctions risk as well. Um, and, of course, Russia yep. is, is right now uh, clearly in that zone um, and worries about those and you need a, a bigger risk premium. And, of course, right now, uh, the U.S. seems to have a number of different spats with a number of different countries. Uh, so that's... Uh, one factor. Uh, In terms of more direct financial contagion, uh, the easiest way that could happen would be for uh, severe losses on Turkish assets um, due to, for example, default risk or something of that nature, leading markets to uh, have to sell out of other places with risk. Um, Now at the moment, I think the risk of that is relatively low, just because so many investors have already sold the Turkish assets. Maybe the, the risk is more localised right now to Turkey from that perspective. But it's something that you shouldn't rule out and, and definitely keep an eye something on.
1: Something that we've explored on this programme is how a technical issue can quickly become a fundamental one. When you have to address what is happening in Turkey's markets, when you have to address what happens in Russia, Argentina and elsewhere, all of a sudden, short-term rates in these countries adjust aggressively higher. And then you have to think about whether that chokes off growth and chokes off earnings of local companies as well. Are we at that point now already, Shahab?
2: I think for sure in in the case of uh, Argentina, we've we've passed that point. Um, In Turkey's case, we are definitely at that point. Uh, The the reality is that the reason why uh, Erdogan and others in Turkey don't want much higher rates is their knowledge that, that will probably go hand in hand with a recession. Uh, and that's obviously something that's politically unpalatable. So that point has already been reached. The only question now is the path we take from here uh, in terms of whether they go for an early stabilization yeah. of the currency or not.
0: Can I switch gears?
1: You John? can, sure. Can I do that? Do I have permission? Yeah, you have
2: permission.
0: I, I very quietly, you know, we're talking about sterling, blah, 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 and EM and all that, I get it. Euro is on the move. We haven't talked about Switzerland and this huge signal, if you will, this traffic signal for all of foreign exchange. Why is Swiss stronger versus the euro?
2: The Swiss franc continues to play a role uh, as the ultimate barometer. in Exactly. Space. Explain it to our of, audience. Well, of local European problems. So uh, we, we do have a situation still where the market knows that there have to be potentially contentious budget negotiations in Italy. Uh, and there is a risk premium so for So it's Italians. a flight
0: to quality.
2: It's still uh, in FX space. The euro against the Swiss franc remains right. the ultimate barometer of how intra-European tensions uh, are panning. So up. if
0: AC Milan is going down the tubes in, what's it called, Juventus? Juvenus? Close enough. They're going up with, with Renault and all that. Uh, the answer with, is with Swiss who? franc. Renault. Renault. <laughs> Did you just refer
1: to Ronaldo as Renault? Yeah, Renault is <laughs>
2: As close on. as I can. carry on. Anyways, I
0: mean, Swiss francs moving off of Italy, right? <laughs> it is. And look, at the end of the day, the, the
2: market also knows that the capacity of the Swiss National Bank to continue to intervene and print Swiss francs to expand its balance sheet is lower than in the past because the currency is much weaker than it was, right. let's say, a year ago. <clears throat> and you know, does Switzerland want to be the only buyer, for example, of Italian debt at a time of 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 uh, right. let's say a budget crisis in Italy, probably not. So the market knows this, and that's one of the reasons why the Swiss franc is is, is going up. How
0: sure. does an FX guy like you react to central banks that own equity positions? And I understand the Swiss ownership, I assume, is way different than the Japanese ownership. Right. But I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Fed owns you know ten million shares of Tesla, for all I know. But how do you respond to the idea that a central bank is running a stock portfolio?
2: Well, in the Switzerland's case, you have uh, the central bank's balance sheet being over 20% in equities. uh, I didn't know that. And it's it's overseas equities as well, uh, which is different to Japan's. So that makes it a very leveraged and very, uh, I guess, aggressive balance sheet. Um, the, The problem, of course, is that uh, until such point as equities come off significantly, no one's going to talk too much about this issue as a potential problem for the Swiss. Uh, if anything, right now, what it does is a very positive carry balance sheet because the dividends they What's that they mean?
0: Make- Sub- John, that was a massive jargon alert. Well, Jowlin, there's two minutes in the penalty box. Go.
2: Well, what it means is that the Swiss are paying zero or negative uh, re- or receiving— you know, from negative rates on the Swiss francs they've printed in order to buy these assets overseas, which uh, provide very positive dividend flows. So every year, the Swiss National Bank right. has a very positive cash flow. Versus uh, having negative rates. Well, that's the that's the fact. So the reality yeah. is it's, it's a very sustainable position because you right. print Swiss francs uh, yeah. and you buy these overseas assets. Until such point as stocks right. fall in, in a dramatic way. John,
0: I didn't have the time to talk about this on television this morning, but it's real simple. Nobody's talking about the chronic effect of these negative interest rates. Yeah, and it's why been months they and should, months should even
1: and be in place in a place like Switzerland. If I told you where monetary policy was in Switzerland, would you, <laughs> exactly. tell, would you tell me that GDP would have a two-handle year on year? I mean, growth's okay. The country is rich. It's a wealthy nation. What are they doing?
2: I think what they're trying to do uh, is effectively keep everybody employed in a country where there's enough overseas wealth and enough returns from that overseas wealth to effectively mean that you don't absolutely need to do that. Um, in, in a sense, you have a very wealthy individual, if you want to look at it as, as a person that still wants to work. Um, and so you're trying to find the exchange rate that allows both you know, the wealth stocks that Switzerland have uh, has to come into the country while allowing uh, employment to remain high. It's not an easy thing to achieve. Uh, and that's why you have this uh, awkward situation that you have in Switzerland right now. Of course, inflation is always relatively low in Switzerland too. Yep. Uh, and so trying to at least maintain the illusion that you can reach 2% inflation uh, <laughs> requires these kinds of honestly. Uh, I, I used Honestly, well. I used
1: to scratch my head every time I went over to Zurich. Um, and I'd interviewed the Swiss National Bank governor, and I'd sit down in front of him, and i scratched my head all the time because I was looking around and seeing all of these people driven around in blacked-out Mercedes, incredibly wealthy individuals, and then we had this country that was exploring deeply negative interest rates and building up a balance sheet through buying equities, Tom, and I can't make sense of this. And Japan, by the way, is doing the same thing. It's an incredibly wealthy com- country. GDP per capita is totally fine. Yet they are exploring what is completely yeah. unprecedented um, in central bank yeah. history.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's odd. And the last, really, John, the last 48 hours have been bizarre. Yeah. There's just no other way to put it. Shab, thank you so much. Great to catch up, you, Shab. Thank Joel, you. John thank was, you very much. Uh, with us today on Swissy. But, but you know, a lot of these currencies really move. I walked in, John, I saw Turkish Lear and said, wow. media wars now, and it's wars plural. There's so much going on, just extraordinary uh, what we're seeing. This morning, Tribune, Sinclair Tribune says no. Oh yeah, and by the way, Sinclair, we're going to sue you because it has to do with Sinclair wanting to hold on to their stations, et cetera, et cetera. And there's six other diversions as well. Exhausted in early August, Tuna Amobi joins us with CFR Research. Tuna, when I say the media wars, how do you translate that?
3: You know, I think that's exactly the right terminology, uh, uh, Tom. And I think what we're seeing, uh, you know, the events that are unfolding in the media landscape, whether it's the uh, on the regulatory and, and legal uh, side or even the M&A and the implications, I think, you know, it's it's unprecedented, right? You talk about the Sinclair Tribune. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> this deal was, uh, you know, kind of uh, it had a lot of tip on its shoulder from the beginning, I think. Um, the FCC, when they voted to uh, send that deal for a judicial review, we were of the opinion that it was effectively a, a death sentence, and that's why we downgraded uh, our shares uh, on, Sinc- right. uh, on Sinclair to hold. So at uh, this point, I think uh, a lot of parties in the media landscape are going to be trying to read the tea leaves right. and trying to figure out what this means, especially with the uh, Justice Department pushing ahead with the uh, right. appeal of the at and Time Warner. There's a lot, a lot of things to um you know, to, to right. read into well, what's going on.
0: Is our earnings, our cash flows, are margins persistent into the future, or are they threatened because of the competitive and technological landscape?
3: Well, I think there's no question that technology and advancements have been, uh, you know, one of the catalysts to some of the M&A announcements that we have witnessed um, especially now that a lot of companies are looking to a direct to consumer and the technology that supports that scale is also another factor that comes into play here. So you're seeing a lot of jostling among these companies, just trying to, you know, uh, get exposures across areas, whether it's horizontal or vertical. Yeah. Um, you know, my sense is that uh, there's a little bit of hesitation right now uh, because of all of these regulatory uncertainties. Um, but uh, there's still some appetite out there. I think overall, we think the prevailing sentiment uh, in the landscape is still cautiously positive.
1: But Tuna, I thought we had a little bit more regulatory certainty, not uncertainty. No,
3: I think at uh, best, I think the signals have been mixed uh, under the Trump administration, which they moved quickly to uh, reinstate the UHF discount, which was the catalyst for this uh, you know, Sinclair Tribune deal in the first place, right? And then uh, fast forward later, they go ahead and challenge vehemently the uh, AT&T Time Warner merger. They're still appealing that uh, transaction. So there's conflicting signals out there, uh, and broadcasters are just kind of sitting, uh, trying to figure out what's going on in media companies in general. We saw the, um, you know, the, the Discovery um, script deal uh, was uh, was supposed to be another, it's supposed um, to be, you know, yeah. Well,
0: that's right. But right. not to interrupt, Tuna, but it, it, what's critical here is there's a lot of supposed to be going on. I mean, I, I just find deal to deal to deal. What's the what's the supposed to be story that's an opportunity right now for you?
3: Well, we know there's a lot of dry powder out there sitting uh, and looking to get to work. Uh, media companies, I think their balance sheets are largely in, in good shape. Um, and I think they, what the Disney-Fox deal um, – underscores is that companies are willing to leverage up their balance sheets uh, significantly if they uh, they can prove to investors and uh, make a case that there's right. uh, potential synergies. And that's why investors Oh, oh come on. You sound tolerant. like a
0: CEO. Come on, Tuna. You sound like a CEO, potential synergies. Did they do that deal and the other deals to coming in this supposedly environment? Did they do Disney Fox to do the deal or to be sure somebody else didn't get it? I would
3: argue that uh, it's a little bit of both, right? I think uh, Bob Bagger's has made a pretty compelling case that, um, you know, those uh, synergies can be achievable if not conservative, right? Um, so I think, uh, you know, Comcast obviously wanted it just as, as bad. And for Disney to get those assets just as strategic as uh, not letting Comcast get them and all plays into this, um, you know, um, plays into this rat race um, yeah. among these, companies to get much bigger and more content in the pipeline to push out to consumers.
0: Well, very quickly here. Give me a Brian Roberts update. How bad is his August?
3: Uh, That's a very interesting question. Uh, You know, I think i will do do just fine. Yeah, I
0: mean, mean, the persistency of the cash flow uh, speaks for itself. Tuno Mobi thank you so much. uh, CFRA uh, Research... I'm going to bring in our next guest because John Farrell made me smarter and George Friedman can add to it. George Friedman, one of our most popular guests working out of a bunker in Austin, is encyclopedic on our political economics and how it folds into our defense and our offense. And George, John Farrell just made me smarter by mentioning the tensions within China your lead is circled wagons in China. What do you mean by that? Oh, is in deep
4: trouble. Uh, aside from the Western, you know, awe of China, uh, China has reached a point where it cannot export competitively with other countries. U.S. sanctions make that even more difficult. That means there's tremendous pressure in China. China is a poor country. About a billion people live uh, in pretty much third world poverty. And uh, Xi is desperately trying to hold all these factions together as he applies very painful solutions. And there is tension within China and whether or not it can possibly hold together. Uh, For a 100 years before Mao Zedong, China was a highly fragmented country. So the Chinese are playing with existential problems, but we still think of China as it was five or ten years ago.
1: So what's changed, George, and how is this going to materialize in the coming months?
4: Well, what changed basically was that China built an industrial plan far too large for domestic consumption, and foreign consumption declined after 2008, and competing countries like Vietnam and others uh, were taking away the Chinese market. Uh, How this plays out, basically, has little to do with economics at this point. The economic reality is set. It's now a social and political problem, which is how does the Chinese regime and the Chinese public, in various interests, react to the fact that China's boom is not only over, uh, it is now in a period of extreme stringency.
1: So, George, this is an important question, and I imagine hardly anybody we'd speak to would say yes to this. But do you actually see existential risk to the Communist Party at this point, or at least you see an existential risk evolving?
4: Well, the Communist Party is monolithic. It's a compendium of interests. There are the interests of the coastal cities and party committees there, and their interest is basically uh, to maintain good relations with the West. There's the interior parties. Uh, They haven't benefited much from the the major boom, and they want to see resources diverted from the coastal areas to their interests. This is a huge country. It's very diverse. It has very diverse interests. Obviously, when it was growing fantastically, you could cover up these things. But now when the question yeah. is how do we distribute the pain, is different.
0: George, one of the great realities of our ute is how wrong we got Russian and Soviet Union intelligence before their collapse. Do we have a knowledge of Chinese intelligence, Chinese society, the dynamic of their politics or is we are we flying as blind as we were in 1986 to
4: 88? Americans have this strange tendency to overestimate some enemies and underestimate others. We underestimated the Vietnamese, we underestimated the Taliban. We vastly overestimated the Russian capability. And we're doing the same thing with China now. We don't look at their weaknesses. We don't look at the problems that they have. And above all, we don't look at the fact that what they were a decade ago is not what they are now. Uh, We tend to see them as a kind of static, monolithic entity that can withstand anything.
1: So, George, on on the issue of overestimating, also an issue of overestimating political rivalries, we saw this with Japan in the 1980s, and we saw how that turned out. If we think about why this sanctions push is coming through, this tariffs push to be more precise from the U.S. administration on China, do you think it's born out of overestimating the economic rivalry that China poses? Are you saying they are weaker than some people think they are going to be in the next 10
4: years? That has much more to do with the fact that the United States has a reality it didn't have 10 years ago, which is a declining industrial class. And that may not be a macroeconomic problem, but it's a massive political problem. Yeah. And the question that we're doing is, how do we take care of them,
0: George, this came up yesterday. I want to rip up the script here, but with your abilities, it's a timely question. We had the great uh, interview of David Rubenstein and his peer-to-peer. We did that last night, folks, on Bloomberg Radio with a gentleman as a chief executive officer, Boeing. And a gentleman emailed in and said, would somebody ask how we do defense contracts, and this came back to something called the KC forty six, was this ginormous billion dollar airplane deal, and there's cost overruns, and Boeing, I guess, has to pay the US government a gajillion million dollars. Do you, George Friedman, have any clue how we spend money at the Pentagon? Well, the first thing is what is our
4: strategy and how do we set it? And it's a very conventional understanding. I mean, look, the U.S. Navy wants – there are two entities that want to make China look super powerful. One is China. The other is the U.S. Navy. Because if the U.S. Navy is able to say that the Chinese are a major threat, they're going to get funded heavily. So the vision of the world of what the threats are, what the dangers are, these are essential. They drive the American economy. I mean, one of the – we talked about the Soviet Union and overestimating them. Yeah. There was a major overestimation by the Pentagon. Uh, Other intelligence sources had different views, but the Pentagon view, and that's how we fund them. We identify threats. it It takes 10, 15, 20 years to build a weapon system, and at that time, we hold that threat steady.
0: I I, I still end up reading more about the KC-46, which I don't know what that is. Do we know China's technology and military? I mean, all the interviews we do, and they've got a submarine base hanging off Vietnam there on that island, et cetera. Do we actually know their technology?
4: I'm pretty sure that uh, the military and the intelligence people uh, know what they're capable of. But again, the question is not what they're capable of, but how it's projected. So, yeah. yes, they've got an island they built. So what? <clears throat> that island will disappear about 15 minutes into a war. That's not a, a strategic capability. The right. Chinese are blocked by a string of islands. They can't get out of it because they, have, right. they haven't have had the military
0: strength. Okay, one final question, uh, George, we'll let you go. I was in Helsinki uh, uh, a few weeks back. John wasn't. And I was having a beverage of my choice down by the harbor, and I thought I saw a periscope stick up in the water. Are there really submarines floating around the Baltic How Sea? How many drinks had you had? I
1: imagine. He <laughs> was like 10 <laughs> drinks deep okay. at that point. Just <laughs> Come on, there. we're on with Mr.
0: Friedman. Keep this serious. George, Baltic <laughs> well, Sea. Are there I'm like gone. submarines bouncing into each other in the Baltic Sea?
4: Well, not bouncing into each other. There's a lot of maneuvering. <clears throat> the Russians maneuver there. Uh, we. Tend not to go too deep into it, but, yeah, there are submarines
0: everywhere. And uh, if there were war, a lot of them would be destroyed very quickly. How, how do they get through the, da- the Danish Straits? I mean, out there, you know, way west of Helsinki, there's a, like a what zillion else did million you see? islands. The, the yeah, Loch
1: Ness Monster sort of gives them a little bit of a tuck, Tom. Okay, we're going to we're gonna leave through. it, George. You don't have to answer
0: that question. We'll do that the next time. George Friedman with us on the Danish Straits. Francis Donald with us uh, with Manual Life, uh, doing macro strategy there. And right now, we want a macro strategy through the core economic function. Let's start with 69, 70% of GDP, which is the consumer. Francis, what's the dynamic of the consumer right now? It- it's
5: just fine. We could go through all the numbers, but the story is the same it's been, which is employment is strong, wages are steadily rising, the labor force is increasing, and there are wealth effects that are occurring not, through, not just through wages, but through home prices at 6.5% and through the equity market. Consumer, that's the steady state that we don't need to worry about right now, where we need to shift our focus <clears throat> is to the I and to the G.
0: Well, the I always is variable. Folks, I is what? what, what is 17% of the economy. Am I right on that?
5: It's up there and it's incrementally important. It's volatile. It's volatile, uh, but it's also increasingly going to be the pivot function here. So, as we lose a little bit of steam into the you end know. of this cycle, we probably have a year and a half, two years. We need the investment, we need the eye to come back online, and this is where my concern is. And some of the soft data that we've been looking at does suggest that that business confidence that we witnessed over the last eighteen months or so may be peaking out. And I think this is where the Federal Reserve is going to be spending a lot of their okay. time researchers and research
0: uh, experts. But, uh, but this is critical, folks. And so we've now we're going on months and months from the tax bill and all that. I thought we incentivized corporations to invest, and we now see in tax receipts a hockey stick of lower tax receipts in a Stan Collender, among others, the budget guy, just publishing a trillion-dollar deficit for next year. Where's the payoff of that, which is the investment? <laughs>
5: That's a very good question, and it's the key question as to when we see this cycle ending. Is it a year and a half out, or do we push it out further because we get yeah. that investment impulse? Now, what worries me comes back to this PPI data this morning, which is that these input prices across all of our input price metrics are rising. They're rising because of commodities, because of energy, but also because tariffs are starting to work their way through the system. And at this point, this is when I start to worry about things like margins. Can companies pass on yeah. costs to consumers? consumers. I'm not sure they they can. So this is going to work uh, against some right. of the shield that we saw from the fiscal push.
0: Now explain the dynamic that everybody always ignores, which is the G, government spending, and of course that's wrapped up in our fiscal policy and deficits. How does G shift in the next 24 months? Well,
5: G already shifted. We got a sizable fiscal pulse uh, through a tax cut and other measures. It was about 1.2 percentage points of GDP for this year, 2018. It's going to be about 1.6 for next year. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. will be capable of withstanding some of the headwinds created by tariffs. But it won't be able to shield against all of them. And most importantly, it won't be able to shield against the hit to confidence.
0: Okay, but, but I'm doing my back of the bow tie math. Which is four take away whatever number you just gave me, tells me right now the run rate of this economy is sub three percent, given all the g shenanigans we're doing is that is that an okay statement.
5: Let's- Sounds about right. I mean, the U.S. is not a 4% GDP economy, just like it's not a 3% inflation economy either. It's a 2%, 2% type of world. What we're going to see with the G is that the government spending adds some variability to that over time, and it should have also worked through the confidence channel. And those animal spirits were quite strong over the first half of this year, but my concern moving forward is that those animal spirits that came off of this tax cut may begin to
0: fade. And so finally, to round out the equation, What everybody flunks on the exam, which is the dynamics of our exports and imports. I go back, Francis, to the, the rule that the media always focuses on imports and never on exports. Do we have a buoyant American export economy?
5: Well, we should, except the global trade activity has been decelerating. It probably peaked out about three months ago. If we get China back online, that should support global trade activity, and that's a tide that lifts all boats. But generally, when we think about what's going to well, happen over the six to nine months, the export component, that's going to stay relatively the same. It's do we get the offset coming from investment and government spending. That's where the key right. um, inflection point is going to be in the U.S. story.
0: And now, folks, with the Clinic, and Folks, this will be out in a podcast. We're going to do this section with Francis Donald of Manual Life, out with Apple, um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and our other venues. Th- thank you for the podcast feedback that we're getting. Francis, let's round it out in that we all understand dollar dynamics affect net exports. I would respectfully suggest dollar dynamics affect the investment component you're focused on.
5: They absolutely do. And they stronger dollar, higher wages, input costs rising. These are all things that are going to weigh on margins, weigh on companies moving forward. And that's why over earnings season, I just kept looking, what are we getting? What's, what does the guidance look like from these companies? What'd you so, see? Far, it, so far, it looks just fine. We don't get any particularly uh, terrible guidance. Guidance for Q3 has been better than typically for the first month of the quarter. Yeah. Um, So it looks like this is still kind of a a wait-and-see type of environment, Right. one that I'm not overly concerned about right now. Um, You might have noticed that New Zealand uh, governor overnight made a really interesting comment. He said that they're watching, worrying, and waiting. And I think that's uh, three words that we can take with us over the next couple of months uh, across the entire world.
0: But you sound like an economist when you say that, because that's what economists are paid to do, is to watch, worry, and and wait as well. Is Chairman Powell going to wait? I don't see it. I mean, he's 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 wedded to a rate increase in September, and he moves right on uh, from there. Do you pick predict a second rate increase towards twelve thirty one?
5: Yeah, markets are predicting a second one. And what I say here is the risk is really asymmetric. It's not like we're going to move towards pricing in three rate hikes by the end of this year either. And the second point is that Powell has a lot of optionality here. He's going into Jackson Hole with a 3%-esque CPI. By the end of this year, it should be down towards 2%. He can choose how he wants to frame that. We're at target or we're a little bit above target. He has a lot of room to do what he wants over the next half of this year. My sense is he's going to push towards normalization. The central banks have a pocket Mm. here before growth starts to meaningfully decelerate in 2019 I think they go
0: for it Francis thank you so much what a great clinic uh, from Francis uh, Donald head of macro strategy at Manulife life as well and that'll be out on our Apple podcast today thanks for listening to the Bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple podcasts SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.